0: Hey, listeners, welcome back. Today's episode is a repeat of an interview I did with Dr. Lisa Horowitz back at the very beginning of the podcast. I wanted to replay it now because I think it fits into May's mental health theme about suicide prevention and follows the two episodes that you've heard from Christopher Veal and Ann Moss Rogers on lived experience. Dr. Horowitz is going to talk about the Ask Suicide Screening Questions screening tool and how you can use that in your practice in a way that makes sense and is doable. Dr. Lisa Horowitz is a staff scientist and pediatric psychologist at the National Institute of Mental Health Intramural Research Program at the National Institutes of Health The major focus of Dr. Horowitz's research has been detection of suicide risk in the medical setting. She is lead PI on six NIMH suicide prevention protocols that involve validating and implementing the Ask Suicide Screening Questions, or the ASQ. These have been used both in the emergency room, inpatient medical settings, and in the outpatient setting. Dr. Horowitz is collaborating with hospitals, outpatient pediatric clinics, and school settings around the country, assisting with implementation of suicide risk screening and management of patients who screen positive using the ASQ toolkit and youth suicide risk screening clinical pathways, also known as the Brief Suicide Safety Assessment, or BSSA. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lisa Horowitz
1: back to the podcast. Hey, Lisa, how are you? I'm well, thank you. And, and thank you so much for having me. And it's, it's really a pleasure to be talking with you this morning. Well, I really appreciate all the work that you've done on suicide screening. And I know
0: our paths seem to keep crossing at many different intersections. And I just wanted to have an opportunity for you to share the work that you're doing and why it's important for pediatricians and other healthcare providers to know. So I think just one of the things I wanted to start with was that you've worked on this for a long, long time and how you got started in this field.
1: Yes, well, that's an interesting question because I, looking back, I never would have pictured myself where I am and doing the work I'm doing today. When I finished my doctorate in psychology, I was trying to get a job and my dream job was going to be working on an inpatient child psychiatric unit. And I was at Boston Children's Hospital and I wanted to be the psychologist. And I think I was a shoe in for the position. I was a fellow there and I was working with the chief of psychology and I ended up not getting the position because at that time the it was just the field of psychology and jobs for psychologists were just saturated. And this was in the ni- early 90s. And so I didn't get the job. Someone 10 years my senior got the job. And and I was was pretty devastated. I thought, here I did all this work on my doctorate, and then I didn't get this job. And then I had a mentor that I was super lucky because she pointed me in the direction of doing a pediatric health services research fellowship and it came with a 2 year master degree in public health and I thought she was crazy when she said <laughs> to me you you could do this fellowship and you could go back to school and I said I just finished 6 years of of graduate school you know the last thing I wanted to do was go back for some other degree that I didn't think I cared about And she was like, no, really look into this and and you might like it. And so it turns out I did it. And it turns out to be, I always love telling young people this, that you have this idea of your career path and then you get thwarted and it feels devastating, but you actually can redirect yourself towards something that you might land in your actual dream job, (laughs) So I did this fellowship and I was looking for a research project. And in the late 90s, this was going on all over the country. Mental health patients were just flooding emergency rooms. And in our hospital, we had a 25-bed emergency department. And on any given night, half of those beds could be taken up with mental health patients. And the nurses were beside themselves you know the so you could have 10 beds taken up with psychiatric patients and it was i think very difficult for them because they weren't necessarily specially trained to manage psychiatric patients and so i was looking for a fellows project and it just so happened that one night there was a child who took a medical implement and stabbed themselves in the emergency department and it was time to have some kind of suicide risk screening tool at triage. And we needed a tool and this child turned out to be okay, but he hurt himself pretty badly. And so I was looking for a fellows project and I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll try instrument development and I'll develop a suicide risk screening tool as my fellows project. That's what ensued. And I ended up being part of a team that created A suicide risk screening tool for mental health patients that were coming into the emergency department. And it was the nurses at first were not that happy with the research project because they had to ask a lot of questions. It was extra work for them. And my promise to them was if you help me with this project, I will create a tool that's very short and very brief. The way you create a screening tool is you take a list of candidate items. So we had about 14 candidate items. And then you give a gold standard suicide assessment. So the nurses would have to ask every child who was in this research project 14 questions. Now they didn't love that at triage, right? I'm impressed that they would go
0: along with that. They must have hoped that there was something in it for them.
1: Yes. So that was my promise. I said, ask these 14 questions and I promise I will make the tool very brief. So, you know, I got a lot of eye rolling, but because nurses, I believe saved the day a lot. So they did these questions and what we were able to do is whittle it down to four items that took like 20 seconds to ask. So we came up with this tool called the risk of suicide questionnaire, the RSQ, and it was being used And then I was trying to get it out to all comers in the emergency department, but at that time, it was really going to just be the mental health patients. Flash ahead to, um, because of my personal life, I needed to make a move down to Washington, D.C., the Bethesda, Maryland area. And I was trying to get a job at NIH. And I was looking into the National Institute of Mental Health, and it turned out, that there was a suicide in the hospital at the clinical center. And so people were very interested in suicide and I was getting a job on the psychiatry service at NIMH and also going to be able to work on research. And so I, the NIMH was very interested in studying suicide, but They didn't really have a suicide prevention program on the intramural side yet, but then this suicide happened. And so clinically people were worried about how to prevent this in hospital. So we talked about it and uh, I had other duties to do. That wasn't my main part of my job, wasn't research at that time. So one day I was having lunch with one of the psychiatrists who is now the clinical director, Dr. Marilyn Powell. And at that time, she had just come from being director of psychiatry in the emergency room at Children's National. And she was talking and she was really worried about kids that were coming into the ER that had occult suicidality. They they weren't telling anybody. They just were keeping it to themselves. The medical patients mostly were presenting for things like broken ankles or belly pain or headaches. And so she asked me, you know, can we take your tool and give it to everybody. And so my tool was really only created for mental health patients, people presenting with any kind of behavioral health issues. And so I wasn't sure if you could use it on a population of medical young people. And so we said, she said, all right, well, let's do this study. I know these people at Children's National, you know, those people at Boston Children's, I had a good friend and colleague at at Nationwide Children's, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Bridge. And so We connected the three hospitals and we created a suicide risk screening tool for nurses and doctors who were on the front lines in the emergency department that didn't necessarily have training on how to screen for suicide risk. And we created the Ask, the Ask Suicide Screening Questions. So
0: my question is for you. I mean, that's pretty amazing story that somebody actually wanted to do that study because it it must have felt like opening Pandora's box. Like, do we really want to know that? That's a lot of people to ask who, what if they say yes, you know, what are we going to do? I'm wondering how did you convince physicians and nurses that it was okay for them to ask those questions when they're not mental health professionals? They are not trained. I think that that's a big fear. Um, Like, how am I supposed to do it? Why should I do it when,
1: you know, I'm not a, I'm not a social worker. I'm not a therapist. Yes, absolutely. That was a hurdle. And I have nothing but the utmost respect for nurses and physicians and their time, right? So if you're a busy triage nurse or an ER nurse or an ER doc, your time is measured in minutes, if not seconds. And I think it's really difficult to have something else to do that might create more time. And, you you know, in, especially in an ER where there's long waits and, and that's a big concern. Are we going to make the waiting time for a patient even longer? And so we got a lot of pushback. And in fact, even when we tried to clear the study through an IRB, the IRB said, you know what, parents of kids who come in for medical issues are never going to let you ask their kids about suicide. And it turned out, and so we said, okay, well, let us try, you know, we'll do a pilot study. And um, it turned out that, that wasn't true. There was over a 60% response rate in some of the hospitals, it was over 80%. And actually there were parents, we did, especially in the beginning, we did a lot of focus groups and talking, debriefing and finding out, you know, how is this going for the nurses? How's it going for the doctors? You had the nurses ask the kids without the parents in the room, right? Right. Yeah. So actually, even now when I do a training, that's the biggest concern for nurses. One of the biggest, That that's one of two very big concerns. Um, so. It's how am I gonna get this very worried parent? You know, what could be worse than taking your child to the emergency room and you're, you know, a worried parent and then somebody asks you to step out of the room. And so what we did was we created a script and we sort we role modeled it for them. And the nurses told me was that in the beginning it was really hard and they didn't uncomfortable. And then when they saw that the parents stepped out easily, you know, um, there was one debriefing I did. I would ask the nurses, how are you doing this? And sometimes they would ask the kids, you know, is it okay if your mom leaves the room or do you want your mom to stay or do you want your mom to go? (laughs) And we learned very quickly that you can't put that on the child. It's really too much that you really need to just state to the parents, I'm going to ask you to step out for a moment. And, you know, it wasn't a lot of time. It wasn't go get a cup of coffee or go get lunch. It was, I need two minutes. And then, you know, if I have, and to be upfront, if I have concerns about your child's safety, I'm going to tell you. And so it wasn't something that we did in secret. We didn't want the nurses to say, oh, step out. I have, you know, you said step out. I have some safety questions. And um, some of the nurses say, I'm going to ask your child, I'm going, to, I'm going to screen for suicide risk. Suicide is a national public health problem. And most parents were just happy to step out. I had a parent tell me that she was so glad someone was asking her child this because she didn't know how to do it. And, and you know, I think that's the most difficult piece of screening for suicide risk or identifying suicide risk is that people don't feel comfortable with the words, you know, how, what if, what if I put the idea into their head? That's what, that was the second biggest concern. I'm going to ask this child who's here for cystic fibrosis. If, you know, they ever thought about killing themselves and what if now I put the idea into their head and they're going to think about it. So There have been at least four research studies now showing that you cannot, if someone's not thinking already about suicide, you're not putting the idea into their head by asking them. And in fact, the best way to keep a young person from killing themselves is to ask them, are you thinking of killing yourself?
0: Wow. That seems like really important information for people to know. I mean, and I think that the words are hard, but once you do it, you know, I mean- are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you thinking of suicide? I used to ask, um, Do you ever wish you weren't here anymore? Well, they're in my office. They probably wish that a lot. So <laughs> it, it took me a while and it was uncomfortable and awkward. Um, and then there's always the um, way of asking it you, You're not having thoughts of suicide, right? So I think that those scripts that you have are super important because otherwise, People just don't know how to ask, and they're afraid. What if they say yes?
1: Yeah, it, yeah, it's such, that's such a good point, Leo. Because in fact, I've had a pediatrician who told me sometimes they're in a rush and they say, "School's okay, right? You're you're doing okay. You got friends, yeah, and you're not thinking of killing yourself, are you? You know, like they can. You can ask the question in a way that doesn't open the conversation up. And so well, it's,
0: uh, I've checked the box. I did my job, um, <laughs> you know, hoping, 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 please don't say yes. Please don't say yes. Yeah. I got to the point where my nurses would say, Leah,
1: it's just a strep throat. Don't ask them if they're depressed. <laughs> right, right. And, and so it's, it's a really a different way of thinking. It's, it's whole person, whole body. You know, when I would do these debriefs with the nurses, they would tell me, and, and this was one of my favorites. I did one. And. I had the sweetest nurse say, you know, I just changed the wording of the question a little bit. So, (laughs) and I, I, it was just so funny. And I said, well, what do you mean? And then a few other nurses said, yeah, we don't really like the wording. So we changed it. I said, no, don't change it. These each, this is a research study. It took, you know, four years (laughs) to test each one of those questions and, you know, you may over detect or under detect if you ask it in a different way. And so please ask it verbatim, but they did, they became comfortable. And, and it was funny. I was having a conversation with a nurse and it's really all about your comfort zone, right? So if I had to ask one, I'm a pediatric psychologist, right? If I had a patient in my office and I had to say, are you having diarrhea that would make me so uncomfortable because I'm not used to talking about diarrhea, but these nurses, you know, they would ask about diarrhea. There was a nurse who she would screen for testicular cancer. So she would ask about, you know, testicles and like, those would be things that as a psychologist, I'm not used to talking to patients. about. So, but I have no problem asking someone about suicide. So it was, the just getting comfortable and using that as an example i think really helped them and then when they started to do it the first time was awkward second time was awkward but the first time one of them got a positive response a, a young person saying to them you know I never told anyone this before or yeah i i tried to do i tried to hurt myself a couple of weeks ago and I didn't tell anybody and it changes their outlook immediately for the nurses. When they, I think even for the physicians, you know, I had an emergency room physician who was very much against screening and thought the kids were too young that, and then she had a 10 year old who came in, who she had to resuscitate because he tried to hang himself and she was, you know, did a 180. She was like, okay, I get it now. And, and I think screening is important.
0: I mean, if you're really thinking, I went into medicine to save lives. I mean, this is saving a life. And, and I do think it's uncomfortable because we haven't had training. And it's a common. I mean, in, you know, our practice, we've looked at screens for over a year and month to month to month. 15% of kids have suicidal thoughts. Now, I would tell you, it is rare that it's imminent that I've had to send them to the emergency room. But you know, it gives me an opportunity to say, gosh, it sounds like you're not feeling very well. I think I can help you with this. Let's work together. You know, I need to talk to your parents, but about this to keep you safe. You
1: know, but at the end of the day, if that's something I've accomplished. I think I've done my job. Yeah, I think that's so important. I think that is exactly why people don't screen because they're so worried that, you know, in, in addition to all, they have so much on their plates. So pediatricians, especially how, you know, seeing so many patients per day that if, if someone screens positive, I think there's a real concern. It will derail their, you know, whole flow of their office. What we see now, because we have big data, so there's a, a large hospital in Dallas, Parkland, that's been screening over 100,000 kids with the ask. And so we have real data showing that the percentages of kids who screen positive is really you know, close to 2%. So 2% of your patients and the majority, um, not, you know, especially in outpatient. I would say it's 99.5% are going home. It's very rare that you have a patient presenting with a medical, acute medical problem, or I'm sorry, medical problem that has an acute or imminent risk for suicide. And so that's what we created this tool to have, there's detecting kids that are thinking about suicide and, and it's not a one size fits all, right? Nothing, nothing ever is. But every child that's thinking about suicide does not have to go to the emergency room. I think that's a 180 because,
0: you know, years ago, before I somehow stumbled into this work, I mean, that's what I did. Um, or I was calling an inpatient unit saying, you have to take this kid. And of course, there are just so few beds in our state. You know, there's like 256 kid beds. So, I mean, the reality is they wouldn't take them. And if they did, they weren't there very long And the kids still were struggling with that. And I guess I'm wondering, how does what you did in the emergency room translate into primary care? Yeah, what's that like? Because, you know, of course, that's my, you know, where I, I live is in primary care world. And, you know, the reality is we have kids that come into our office that are suicidal or at least have thoughts. It may not be, you know, again, that imminent risk in my experience is not common. But there are a lot of kids that are in pain and it gives them an opportunity to share it, you to give them some help and which is doable, even if you're not a mental health professional. And I think sometimes you just have to shift gears. I mean, if I'm doing a physical and a kid says they're having thoughts of suicide, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on their well child physical until I attend to that because it's
1: not the most important thing. But that's a hard, a hard pivot. It is. It is, and it's a big challenge. And what what I try to tell people is is that suicide is the second leading cause of death. And I don't think a lot of people are aware of how common it is, and how yeah how pervasive it is in our young people. If you look at, there's a researcher, and a, he's a child psychiatrist and a pediatrician. His name is Dr. John Campo. He has a great pie chart of when you go to medical school, this is what you get trained as a pediatrician to treat. And this is what kids die of. And so if you look at what kids die of and what you get trained to treat as a pediatrician, you get trained to treat a quarter of what kids die of because kids are dying of suicide, homicide, And then unintentional accidents, right? Those are the top three. With unintentional accidents is number one, suicide is number two, homicide is number three. But, you know, I'll ask you, how much time did you spend in medical school learning how to screen and assess for suicide risk?
0: None. I mean, now I'm old. I mean, I've been doing this for (laughs) 32 years. So, you know, I mean, in terms of mental health stuff, I learned about ADHD and how to treat that you know, there were very few medications. I mean, I'm pre-Prozac, you know, there are very few medications mm. that were very safe. The tricyclic antidepressants had a lot of suicide risk. I mean, and, and they could die from it because they were pretty lethal. So, you know, we just didn't ask and I'm sure it was there, but we just didn't ask and, you know, don't ask, don't tell. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. So no, I didn't get any of that training. And this is, I mean, relatively new, but like it's interesting that you mentioned in the nineties, how many people were in the emergency room for psychiatric stuff, because that's how it is now. I mean, it feels like it has exploded. And I think the numbers in pediatrics are that a third of the reason why parents bring their kids to the office is for behavioral health concerns. Mm -hmm. So And then there's probably behavioral health concerns underneath that, that we don't even know, you know, they're coming in because they have chronic abdominal pain, chronic headaches, and lo and behold, you know, they have anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts.
1: Right. We haven't made a dent in the suicide rate in over 50 years. It just keeps creeping up. And, you know, I have... You you asked how it went from the emergency department to primary care. And I just want to tell you that story because I think that I have a a pediatrician superhero that I'd like to tell the story about. But, you know, being an empiricist, we tested this ASK tool on medical patients in the ER. And, And I guess technically then you could use them on all medical patients, but we actually did validation studies in the inpatient unit and the outpatient primary care and specialty clinic. But one day I gave a talk and it was one of the chapters of AAP and there was a pediatrician in the audience who called me a few days later and he, that was Dr. Ted Abernathy. And he said, you know, I heard your talk and I'm really worried about this in my practice and I would like to screen for suicide risk. Can you help me? And so he was our first observation study that we did a primary care pediatrician giving the ask in the outpatient setting. And anybody can YouTube him, Dr. Ted Abernathy. He, there's actually a video of him on YouTube that I would share where he talks about why it's so important. Because when I present this tool, often pediatricians will tell me they would love to do it, but they don't have time. And they're concerned about the liability because if they want to get a patient to connect them with mental health, it could take six weeks or more. So what do they do if they find a child who's suicidal? So Dr. Abernathy would say, he's not worried about all the ones he's going to catch. He's worried about the ones he's going to miss. And he says that, so, you know, I didn't do that justice, but he says that so poignantly in this video that he just couldn't, you know, people are worried about liability, about asking, well, what about the liability if you don't ask and, and, and forget the liability, but what about just feeling like if you look at death registry studies over 80% of people who die by suicide have visited a healthcare provider weeks before their death.
0: Well, and there's yeah. nothing worse than, uh, oh my God, if I would only asked, if I only knew, I mean, it's like the pit of your stomach, yeah. you know, bad feeling that, you know, I missed it. And, and I mean, we all know that feeling for medical things, but you know, this too, and yeah, that, that's a, a big worry. I did, I went to a conference where there was a an attorney who represented families where someone had died by suicide and what he told the audience, and I thought it was so interesting was that if you use evidence-based tools and you document that you did the best that you could do using these tools, that you were at less likelihood of being sued because He said, as an attorney, if I see that, I know that, you know, there's no guarantees and you did the best you could with the highest level of best practice. So it's actually better if you do this
1: than if you don't. And I, I, that was a big take home for me. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody, this is hard. This is really challenging. Like every time I assess a patient who's at risk for suicide, every single time and I'm trained and I talk about it and study it every day, but it is hard every time. I am completely humbled by it that I'm sitting there with this young person and, or even an adult. And and I don't know if I think they're safe to go home. Am I really sure? No, but but you have to err on the side of caution and, and do the best you can. And and if you don't ask, you're you're definitely not gonna detect it. Um, because patients don't talk about it. You know, in the studies show that unless you ask, most most of your patients are not gonna say, you know what, I'm actually thinking of killing myself. And then especially like, especially a kid. Especially you know, a kid that is not gonna say that
0: and maybe you could talk a little bit about so the, what if I do get a positive, is this tool useful to help me, you know, make that next decision? Because then I'm stuck with, and now what am I supposed to do? Yes. Is there a way to kind of know, like, can I send them home? How much
1: should I worry? Can I sleep tonight? Right. So um, that's interesting that you say, can I sleep tonight? Because what we used to have in the field were things called safety contracts. And so providers would say, you know what? I want you to sign this. That's for adults. They would do this mostly, you know, or they would do it for kids too, I guess. Sign this that says you promise not to kill yourself. And then the provider went home and they slept at night because the patient signed the contract. <laughs> but we, you know, they're, we don't believe that's valid anymore. That was done years ago. And now instead we make safety plans. So yes. And, and in fact, the ask tool comes with a toolkit. And what we did was we created, so screenings just tip of the iceberg you know, you can, screening takes 20 seconds and you're completely not done after screening. I mean, over 90% of your kids will say no. So I just want to underscore that. Most of your patients who present with medical problems will say no when you ask them if they're having suicidal thoughts, but the ones that say yes, you know, the tool is only a 20 second tool. So you need to give a follow-up Assessment. There's a difference between a screening and an assessment. A screening is just a flagging someone at risk, an assessment is a more comprehensive evaluation. So, we created the Brief Suicide Safety Assessment, the ASK BSSA, for pediatricians, and it walks you through, you know, how frequency of suicidal ideation. It just gives you reminders of what to ask about. Does the patient have a plan? Um, do they have supports in place? Have they ever have past suicidal behavior before? Because that's the number one predictor of future suicidal behavior is past behavior. Um, and it just, it, it talks about how to bring the parent in and how to, um, make a safety plan with the child so that if it's two o'clock in the morning and they're having thoughts about suicide, you, you will have walked them through, this is what you're going to do. Um, so there is there are things to do. We ask everyone before they screen to set up an a priori relationship with a mental health provider. And so, for example, Dr. Abernathy contacted a few mental health providers and said, "I'm starting screening. Would you be willing to see my patients, you know, within 72 hours of me screening them?" And so, again, you walk this this brief suicide safety assessment and you can use any tool. Um, you can use the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale. You can use um, this BSSA to do this second tier evaluation. And it ends in a disposition, either, you know, I'm sending the child to the emergency room because they're at imminent risk. And that happens incredibly rarely. It's very rare to have to go from pediatrician's office to emergency room. Um, And I will tell you because I know Dr. Abernathy's data and I know of several other pediatricians that have been screening, um, and it's the acute positives are less than 1% of your patients. It'll happen once in a while, but not not often.
0: And my experience has been the same. one of the things that has helped us enormously, and if people out there are able to in any way, shape or form, to have some alliance with behavioral health is to have mental health personnel in your practice. Yeah, now, not everybody can afford to do that. But I think you can get creative, but you know we we have social work embedded in our practice. So I could say to a patient, "I'm really concerned, I have an expert right here in my office that can help." And they could help do the assessment and the safety plan. However, when we haven't had them, you know, I've done it myself, it does take time. Uh, On the other hand, if I had a child that had, you know, something serious, you know, a bad asthmatic episode or something like that, a new onset diabetic, it's going to take me time too. But it, it is doable. And I think at least having that idea of risk. I would say in the last three years, I I haven't sent a single kid to the emergency room. And yet 15% of our patients who we screen have suicidal ideation. So they don't need to go to the emergency room. And in fact, I think that experience can be so traumatic. Yes. Because, and and the other thing is when they get to the emergency room, they have a social worker assess them and then 75% go home, if not more. So then they're right back in my office. So I think if I really had a plan and I mean, I'll have kids take a picture of their safety plan and put it in their phone. We'll go over it with the parent. And I mean, that's a whole nother talk about safety. Yes.
1: Safety plan can be a whole nother talk,
0: but, yeah. but I think that risk assessment, you know, the, I broke up with my boyfriend and yeah, I have thoughts that I wish I wouldn't wake up, you know, that kid who doesn't have intent, doesn't have a plan. You know, the likelihood that they're going to die by suicide is small. It's possible, but there are other interventions you can do. And I like that his idea of partnering with mental health, if I don't have them here in my office, can I partner with somebody that, you know, you can see them? The other option sometimes is um, if you have a local crisis line, crisis center, sometimes you can partner up with them and call them and say, hey, could you make this
1: follow-up phone call? So that's another, another option, right? There's also the option that until they can secure mental health care, that they come back to your office in a few days. And so we have been Mm -hmm. telling pediatricians that as well. And, and the, the second, so there's a clinical pathway that we've developed um, where, so you give the screen, then you give the brief suicide safety assessment and Leah really should only take 10 minutes or less. And the reason is if you look at the guide and i will give you these to post but if you look at the guide it looks long and i'll have physicians say to me are you kidding me <laughs> how am i going to get through that in 10 or 15 minutes no way and i'll say because this as soon as you have your disposition you stop you know you're doing this interim step it, it's it's a three-tiered pathway it starts with a screen Then it follows with a brief suicide safety assessment of the positives. And then that determines whether or not they need the full mental health evaluation. So if you hear that this child is thinking about it all the time every day can't do their math homework because they're so, the thoughts are so bothersome in their head, you don't have to keep going this, you know, or if they have a plan that, and they know they have, they tell you their detailed plan about how they're going to kill themselves, you're done. That person's going to the emergency room now. That's rare. Or if you have the child who tried to kill themselves two weeks ago and didn't tell anybody, and now you discovered it, and you know they are going to need a mental health evaluation, but they're you know they don't want to do it anymore, and they 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 can tell you that they're safe. Then you don't have to send them to the ER, and you you hook them up with mental health services over half of your positive screens, and we know this now from our data, are going to be kids. One of the questions is, have you ever tried to kill yourself? So this is a benefit, I think, for the pediatricians is now they know that they have a child in their practice who has had suicidal behavior in the past, so they can keep an eye on them. So over half of your positive screens are going to be a single yes to the behavior, the past behavior question. And there's bad news and good news about that, right? The bad news is that there's a lot of kids who have tried to kill themselves and it's so sad and tragic. The good news for the screener is that most of the time that is something that the parent already knew about if it was in the past. They got help. They are have a current therapist now that they talk to and you move on. You know, if that's the case, if, if they say, No, no, no to the first three questions and yes to the behavior question because they tried to kill themselves two years ago, but that's not the issue of the day. You know, that's not what they're there for their well visit. You don't have to do anything more than that was a 20 second screen, a few minutes of, oh, I didn't know you tried to do that in the past. Okay. If you have a mental health clinician in place, you have a safety plan and you move on. Management of the positive screens is a tremendous part of implementing a suicide risk screening program because um, it really makes or breaks your program. If, if you are sending everyone to the emergency room who screens positive, you can't screen.
0: Right. And I think, you know, in 2009, I think the recommendations came out from the United States Preventive Task Force and then the AAP that we should be screening for depression there wasn't much comment about what do you do if you find suicidal ideation other than, you know, you should be prepared for that. And that was about it. There wasn't a lot of guidance and it's gotten better over time, but it's almost like, don't ask if you're not prepared. And yet there's this pressure. I mean, insurance companies want us to be asking about depression. And I think probably most of us use the PHQ-9. And I know you and I've talked about could the ask be a tag on to that so that we don't have to like throw out the depression screening questions? Right. And you can just use the ask as more clarifying sort of that next level assessment, um, you know, that that might be an option. And then the other thing I think that you have to keep in mind is asking about access to lethal means, particularly firearms, because I think somewhere I read that 80% 80% of the kids who die by firearm, those guns belong to their parents. And um, there's a really nice online, the counseling access to lethal means training that I learned so much about in terms of what do you do if a parent says, well, I'm not getting rid of my gun and how to work through talking about that. Because even those kids that are at low risk, you still need to be asking about, do you have firearms? And Right. You know, So I think that's the other piece of it that's super important, regardless of the risk level.
1: It is so important. And you know, um, pediatricians know this, there used to be a lot of deaths of young people from drowning and from car accidents, right? And we were able to turn that around and we didn't have to ban swimming pools and cars, (laughs) right? So um, there's a great quote by a Dr. Kellerman and a Dr. Rivera who say that much more eloquently than I just paraphrased it. But they, you know, it's so true. Like drownings were a terrible thing. And what happened? We started putting gates around swimming pools. That's like a law, right? We started making kids take driver's ed and wear seatbelts. And then what happened? You know, it just it was just the last CDC data um, that showed Motor vehicle accidents now have declined and suicide, more kids die from suicide than motor vehicle accidents. So, you know, there's ways to prevent things without taking away people's guns, but safe storage is huge. We did a study in our emergency room. We asked kids if they had access to guns and access to the bullets, or if they knew they, you know, did they have a gun in their house and did they know how to access it? And 29% of the kids at risk for suicide in our study knew where the guns were and knew how to access them. So I think, I think there's a myth that um, it's locked up. Um, and
0: I had a family that had a lot of guns and they had them secured in a room. And I asked the kid who was not suicidal but had some other behaviors that put him at high risk of doing something dangerous and said to him, would you be able to get into the room? And he said, oh yeah, I could take a ladder and climb through the window. So, you know, kids are smart, they know stuff. And I sometimes tell parents, look, you don't have to get rid of your gun forever, but right now, could you get it out of the house? And I know that you have gun locks, but I'm really worried that there's this access and you and I are not gonna be able to live with ourselves if that
1: happened, could you do it temporarily? right so i think what people don't understand is that people who have suicidal thoughts are go into different states of mind and when they're in a really really difficult place and they're thinking about killing themselves the best thing to do is get is a distraction away from that place and you know people will say well look You know, we saw this with putting nets under bridges. If you put a net under a bridge and someone's going to a bridge to jump off, they'll just find another bridge. And you know what? That's not true. If you disrupt their means, then I can't tell you how many stories I've heard where a kid will tell me, you know, I'll say, have you ever tried to kill yourself? And they say, well, one time I was going to, I was going to take pills. And I'll say, well, what happened? Well, my cousin walked in the room. And you know, the story isn't, so when my cousin left, I took the pills or the next day I took the pills. It's, they didn't try again. They were disrupted and then they were out of that state. So the reason why it's dangerous to have lethal means in the house is because when someone's in a state, and this goes for adults and kids, they're not thinking clearly and they may do something impulsive. And if you take away their means, they're more likely to stay alive. Yeah, you just make it, make it harder, make it harder. It,
0: it, I mean, if I have to work at thinking about finding something, it, it's buying me time. And maybe that, that horrible feeling that I'm having will dissipate. And, you know, I mean, I think that's the whole idea of the safety plan is that you're buying some time, you distract yourself until that horrible feeling passes to where you feel like I have no other option.
1: Right. So you know, lethal means safety. You know, there's so many, if you look in your medicine cabinet, even me who studies suicide all the time and I, you know, had kids in the house, I opened my cabinet. I didn't even think, you know, there's Tylenol, there's Advil, like there's, you know, no one thinks, well, Tylenol could be dangerous. Well, a lot of kids take a lot of Tylenol and do damage that they don't even mean to do. You know, I'll just take Tylenol because that's not, that Tylenol, as you know, does a lot of damage. You've got to clear your medicine cabinet out because not only for your kids, but there's kids that come over your house. There are kids who will do impulsive things. There's um, So it's really important to secure lethal means in the house. And I it's do awful. think that there's some other things that
0: pediatricians can do you know, like we post, we have posters with the national suicide um, number. And then I always give them the crisis text line and say, Hey, put this number in your phone, 741-741. And even if you're not suicidal, if you have a friend and you don't know what to do, you could text them and say, Hey, I don't know what to say to this person. And so that kind of, and that may be a a true scenario. So I do think that there are some simple interventions that we do that could make a difference. Yes. Yeah.
1: I'm so so happy that you said that because the crisis text line, I think is, and the suicide lifeline, the national suicide lifeline, those are 24 seven resources for anybody. A a parent could call the suicide lifeline. You know, a friend could. my friend. I'm worried about my friend. I'm worried about my kid, or those are really important resources to have. And those lifeline folks
0: are, Doing suicide assessments on the phone with them, doing some safety planning, can help you. You know, if something happens at two o'clock in the morning, so I, I, you know, I think that those, again, that we're worried about. I don't know what to do. Well, that's something that you can do. Talk about access to lethal means.
1: Right. Provide some crisis resources. Now you've done an intervention. Exactly. And you know, with kids. I think screening in itself is an intervention because some you're putting a parent on alert. You know, even, even if you don't have anything to do with, like, you, have, you don't have a mental health connection and you have to have the child come back in a few days, you just told a parent who lives with that child that their child is having thoughts about killing themselves so they can help keep them safe. I also think fostering resilience is a big part that pediatricians can play in a child's role life. So you as the pediatrician can really be the one who sees the best in them. And you may be the only one who's able to say something positive. You know, they may be coming from a household where there's, especially now, where there's tremendous financial um, stress on parents. You know, a parent might not it might might be so worried or have their own depression. They may not take time out to say to their child, you know what? I'm really proud of you for doing X this year or, and you could be the one who remembers their strengths and talks about it with them. Well, and I think the asking part also
0: tells kids like, I'm not suicidal right now, but gosh, if I was, I could tell my doctor because they're ready to hear that. And I think the other thing is it's really important before we embark on any of this, we have to do a little bit of a, you know, check your own emotional regulation Mm -hmm. because if you panic and you don't know what to do, that conveys to the kid that this is a hopeless situation because clearly my doctor is in a panic and there's no need for that. I think they often talk about it like in a code, you know, the first thing before you, Start a code is, you know, check your own pulse and, you know, take a breath. You got this. And so I'm really hoping that, you know, listening to what you're talking about um, and doing some more kind of introspection that pediatricians, you got this, you can do this. You can make a difference. This is the work that we go into to save lives and you can make a difference. You can offer a kid hope. Yes. There are the tools like this that yes. can help you do that so that you just don't feel like you're flailing?
1: Yes. So let this be a call to action because every single healthcare worker can make a difference in somebody's life by asking. I really believe that. You do have to be prepared for the answer. It's in, We like to give scripts for, for what you do. If you do hear a positive, you can say, I'm sorry, you're feeling so bad. We're I'm going to help you. We're going to get through this together. Let's, let's come up with a safety plan because my first priority is keeping you safe.
0: I mean, I think this is a great, I love the call to action. I think that's a great place to, to kind of land on in that um, if people are interested and really want to up your game, you know, go to the NIH website and look up the ASQ, which is a little confusing because we use the ages and stages questionnaire. That's also the ASQ. So this is the ASQ, but it's the ask suicide screen question. And, you know, the, the toolkits, there are a lot of um, resources. And the other site that is really helpful is Mm zerosuicide.org that has lots of resources It's a little overwhelming because there's so many things, but it's a good place to start. And that I think would be a really helpful uh, guidelines. And I'll post all that in the show notes and then any other things that
1: Lisa feels like we might want to have access to. Sure. And so the National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, has suicide as one of its top three missions. We're trying to reduce the suicide rate by 20% by the year 2025. And so we have a lot of outreach. We have these tools. I'm happy to talk to anybody who wants to implement suicide risk screening. And we have training videos on the Ask Toolkit. If you just Google NIMH and Ask Toolkit, the toolkit website will come up. But we really want to make this doable because we really do believe that every single one of you can save a life.
0: Well, great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And we'll include information on how to contact you, if that was something they needed more information, links to Dr. Abernathy's YouTube, so that people have that information. And your work is amazing. And I'm so grateful that you and I met each other and that you could share this with other
1: pediatricians and healthcare providers. Thank you. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. and, And it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. A huge thanks
0: to Dr. Lisa Horowitz for all the work that she is doing on suicide prevention and how we in the primary care setting can really help. So some takeaways, one is that, and I think this is really important, that the ASQ is a whole lot more sensitive than the PHQ-9. So we've been using that in our practice for a long time. And although question number nine does ask about thoughts of hurting oneself, it really doesn't use that specific language of thoughts of suicide or thoughts of killing yourself. And because of that, the ASQ will pick up kids that we don't wanna miss. Number two, it is really okay to ask parents to step outside the room, and this is hard and awkward, but Dr. Horowitz found in her research that over time, parents really embraced this and were okay with us asking. Number three, it's a myth that asking will put suicidal ideas in kids' heads who weren't thinking about suicide. So we can reassure parents that Our asking is not going to make them suicidal. Number four, this can be implemented in the primary care setting. And as you will hear in the following episode next week, this can be implemented in a way that makes sense. And there is a really nice TED talk on what that looks like by Dr. Abernathy. And again, I will refer to that in the next podcast. So the last point is that we can make a difference by using these simple five questions and that there is a strategy for then assessing the risk. And that's using the brief suicide safety assessment. And once you get used to that, it really can help decide which kids are at imminent risk, which in our setting in primary care is not that common, and which kids are at lower or moderate risk and can be managed in the outpatient setting by referrals to mental health after we've asked some really important questions. And finally, never forget to ask about lethal means access. This is so important and This may not have come up on the podcast, but just remember that any kiddo who is suicidal may not be thinking about firearms, but we need to ask about whether or not firearms are in the home because we know, of course, that that's the most lethal means. So I hope that you can use this information to begin to think about screening specifically for suicide risk in your practices. And as I mentioned, stay tuned for next week's on what that really looks like in real life. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate everything you do. Please tune in next week and hear the final episode on this series on suicide prevention. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.